Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Golden Parachutes. Why are Surrey taxpayers on the hook for 18-month severance if the Surrey Police Service is disbanded? Plus, in an era of hyper-diversity, we speak to a Victoria man who says it's time to take the British out of British Columbia. Plus, why are Marvel Studios cutting back on productions? Has superhero fatigue finally set in for movie audiences? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's continue with where we left off yesterday. Uh, at this time yesterday, Sri Mayor Brenda Locke joined us to discuss the massive tax hike uh, Surrey residents will have to pay if the Surrey police transition moves forward. Now, over the weekend, Mayor Locke said that the average Surrey uh, homeowner could see a 17.5% surge in property tax. In all my years as a reporter, I don't ever recall any municipality in this province uh, talking about a 17.5% property tax. Now, the city says that even keeping the RCMP in Surrey, which is cheaper, according to Mayor Locke, than going ahead with, let's say, the Surrey Police Service, the transition has created a shortfall of $116 uh, million so far. Now, to to make up for it, the budget proposes 9.5% general property tax increase for the next three years, and that's just for the police. So out of the uh, uh, 18.5% that I was talking about, sorry, 17.5% surge that I was talking about, 9.5% of that is for the police. Uh, Here is Ms. Locke making the argument on yesterday's show. I need to also be clear. Mm -hmm. The 9.5% is only for three years, and we are very, very hopeful that we will only have it for a lower amount or maybe not at all after this year. So we're working to that goal. So let's let's walk through that for a second. You said there was an 18-month severance clause. Uh, is mm-hmm. that the only liability in your mind that is sitting on the books? Or what other specific things can you point to to say, this is what's there, and that's why we're going with 9.5%, just on the policing shortfall, never mind the 17.5%. Can you just walk us through a couple right. other points where the, sure. where the concerns are? So this year, in 2020, going into this year, we're $116 million over budget on our policing costs. And that's what that 9.5% equates to. Now, as uh, Mayor Locke uh, said uh, this, just think about this for a second, 18-month severance package. Who gets an 18-month severance package this day and age? I don't know of anybody. Uh, Some have called this a poison pill, essentially that it's too expensive to get rid of the Surrey Police Service because of this 18-month severance package. Now, today, the issue was brought up in the legislature uh, with Mike Farnworth, uh, our public safety minister, asked about that particular issue and why the government, the provincial government, allowed that to get through uh, when it looked at the potential uh, transition from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service. Take a listen to Mike Farnworth here. The member will know that the contracts are negotiated between the, the police board uh, and, uh, and the city of Surrey uh, and their police department. Policing is a local government responsibility, honourable member. Policing is a local government responsibility. That was Mike Farnworth answering, uh, responding to uh, questions from the opposition. Joining me now is Trevor Halford. He's the MLA for Surrey White Rock. He did get up today during question period to ask that question. He joins us now. Trevor, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks, Jazz, and thanks, Robin. Uh, so why the focus on this 18-month severance today by the opposition? Well, a, a couple of things. Um, one is, is I'm actually a, a taxpayer in Syria. I've grown up in Syria and lived there my entire life. And I can tell you, 
um, that this is massive, uh, even from an affordability angle. I've, I've got a young family out in South Surrey, and I can tell you that this is going to hurt a lot of families. And I think there's some questions that need to be asked and, and answered. And I asked a few of the questions today. I, I don't think that they were properly answered. But, um, you know, Jazz, you alluded to it. I have never heard um, of, of an 18-month severance, and that's if you have minimum six months on the job. Mm-hmm. Um, my question was direct to the minister if, if he was aware of this. I didn't get a clear answer on this, but um, I'm quite troubled. And I think that the citizens of Surrey need an answer from the premier and the minister specifically on this. But as the minister said, the contract itself, the, the provincial government's responsibility is public safety, whether it's RCMP or Surrey Police Service. They want to see if there's enough boots on the ground so that people are protected and the police can go about doing their job. The specific contract which is paid for by taxpayers, is up to the municipality. Uh, what do you say to that argument, which Mr. Farnworth made there in, in question period, that, look, that, we don't negotiate the contract. That's up to the city. Our job is about public safety. What do you say to that specific response from the minister? Well, I'd say, yeah, first and foremost, I agree that public safety is the priority, and it always should be. Um, there's no argument for me on that. But there is an obligation to the province um, to protect the financial safety of taxpayers as well. And the fact of the matter is, is this contract came through. It came through the province. They signed off on the transition in August of 2019. And I have never, ever seen it, and nobody has ever showed it to me, that where another uh, another jurisdiction has something like this in 18 months severance. Um, it's unheard of to me. And the, the numbers that are now coming out that are going to be added and borne upon the taxpayers of Surrey, um, I think that we deserve some accountability here. So, Trevor, are you suggesting that there was little oversight from the provincial government and does there need to be some type of review? Not that I'm suggesting an expensive inquiry, but is that what you're suggesting? Well, a couple of things. I think one is we've we've known about this issue in terms of policing. It's been very political. It's been very emotional for a number of years. And listen, I've got neighbours that are RCMP and I've got neighbours that are Surrey police. And every single day they get up and they put their life on their line for our community. And I'm I'm proud and I know everybody is of those individuals. Um, That being said, this has been an incredibly political issue. And, you know, my my plea to the province is they had an opportunity to get involved at a much earlier stage. They neglected to do that. Now they are very, very involved and to the point where they're making a decision. And, you know, the other thing is, when are we going to get that decision? Um, but they've got to bear some responsibility here. And I, I think the minister today, it's, it's uncomfortable for him, but he's got to shoulder that responsibility. This came through their desk. And at the end of the day, and it's an 18-month severance clause, and I've, I've never seen it. But given, given that, that severance clause, what would you do? Would you keep the RCMP or the Surrey Police Service? It's a dilemma. Yeah, it's a huge dilemma, and I, I would say government is hard. But at the end of the day, uh, Minister Farmworth, he's asked for additional information. I'll, I'll take him at his word that they need that in, additional information. They're going to have, um, they're going to have that in front of them, and they're going to need to make a decision. And um, you know, I wouldn't be able to do that unless I had all that information in front of me. But I agree. The, the number one priority is the safety of the citizens of Surrey. That is paramount. Trevor. Uh, are we just too far down the road when you, when you take this 18-month severance package uh, and, the, and the financial liability potentially sitting on the books for Surrey taxpayers? Has the decision not already been made that this is going to go SPS just on the costs alone? And that perhaps the past uh, s- s- council 
was irresponsible in allowing that to move forward. Never been blaming the provincial government, but where's the responsibility yeah. of the previous administration as well when you look at the fact that it's 18 months severance? Uh, no, I don't know anybody who gets that, and I've said this before, and to, and to put that right in the contract certainly speaks to, to me that says, A, somebody wasn't paying attention, or they did it on purpose, and it's a poison pill sitting there which forces a decision on the city and, to a certain degree, the government. Yeah, and yeah, that's a good point, Jazz. And, and my point all along is that the province has had a role to play here since day one. And, you know, when that came across their desk, to me, an 18-month severance clause would be a bit of a red flag there, and it would stand out as a poison pill. Um, now, that being said, I, I think, um, you know, I, Mayor Locke ran on an agenda, and the previous administration ran on a different one. Um, that's what happens. And I, I think at the end of the day, it's what we are concerned about in Surrey is um, making sure that we have proper law enforcement. And I have, you know, I've, I know officers on both sides and, and every single day they're doing their absolute best. But I think what we need is we need some certainty that this province is going to make a decision and we actually need some certainty on when that decision is going to be made. Yeah. Trevor, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. Thanks, Robin. Well, let's talk about names. What's in a name when it comes to a nation or a province? One would argue a lot. It speaks to our collective history and heritage. Our next guest wants to change some of that, or at the very least recognize modern British Columbia. Ben Perez uh, is a a Victoria resident and former head of the Intercultural Association of Greater Victoria. He wants to see the British taken out of British Columbia. After all, our ties to England aren't what they used to be, some would argue. Considering our incredibly diverse population, our immigrants, uh, our immigration level is soon to hit nearly a million, or say half a million new residents per year by 2025. Of those 500,000, by the way, usually about 20% or about 100,000 move to British Columbia. And of course, uh, we, of course, get these immigrants come from all over the world, but specifically specifically, uh, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. Now, add to that, our desire to build a renewed relationship with Indigenous people, uh, Mr. Perez believes that uh, Canada has changed. Well, recently, uh, Mr. Perez sent a letter to every municipality throughout BC suggesting we collectively consider a name change uh, from British Columbia. He joins us now. Mr. Perez, thank you for talking to us today. You're welcome. I hope you're having a good day. I'm having a great day. I'm glad you could join us. Uh, So tell me, why do you want to get rid of the British in British Columbia? Because I'd like us to be 100% Canadian, like residents of other provinces, by having an all-inclusive name. Uh, I think when we are partly British, as in British Columbia, is where British is defined as uh, being a citizen of Britain. And uh, I think uh, we were a, a colony of Britain for only 13 years, and uh, we ignore the thousands year of years of pre-colonial history and nearly 152 years as being part of the Canadian Federation. And... Uh, uh, I feel that those who keep insisting on the province's colonial name feel that being British maintains their superiority over others because uh, these are words that indicate superiority and it is the foundation of uh, bigotry and racism in our province. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you sent, you sent uh, letters to, to municipalities throughout this province to uh, look at this very issue. I think you've sent... Uh, letters to all the MLAs of our province as well? 
Yeah, the, all our MLAs uh, and our our uh, members of parliament and to the media and to columnists and newspapers. And I've been doing that since 2000 and 2008 when I first started this thing. And uh, um, Jack Knox of the Times columnist, columnist, he wrote something in 2008 and and called for people's uh, suggestions for new names. And then there was a old page uh, of suggestions made. That was in 2008, and he did it again in 2018. And now he wrote a column again after I mentioned to him that I had written to all the municipalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, one could argue that, look, uh, a name is a name, but what makes a province or a country are its people. And there is no doubt that this country has had uh, uh, you know, uh, a dark history when it comes to its indigenous people, the treatment of, uh, of immigrants uh, uh, and people of color. Uh, but it also is a country that has attracted many people from around the world, including um, those from Asia and Africa, uh, all over the world. Um, they're still coming here. That The British in British Columbia doesn't bother them. In fact, um, there's going to be more immigrants coming to this country and continue to be to the point where we're going to have 500,000 people potentially moving mm-hmm. to Canada in um, in 2025. None of them that will come to Canada or to British Columbia, but one-fifth of those 500,000 people will probably come to British Columbia, as the numbers uh, so far prove. I, they're not going to complain that it's British British Columbia. Should we? Are we being too sensitive to that name? Oh, well, uh, I do not know about you, but I come from originally from India where... There were during the colonial rule in India. There was massacres by the British, and if you know the history of mm-hmm. India, there were quite a few massacres. And every time I, I see the name British uh, as as being part of British Columbia, and I am a British Colombian, um, I am reminded of those things mm-hmm. and uh, the history of uh, colonial rule in in. Many parts of the world, Africa and others, is the same, you know. And uh, right now, I mean, when uh, when MLAs or politicians or, or public officials stand before the uh, uh, British Columbia flag and uh, uh, they give a land acknowledgement, uh, I wonder if it's if they are being uh, insensitive and. Uh, uh, hypocritical when they talk about we are on the land of the Lekwungen people and there behind them is a, a British flag which will remind them of their colonial history which was I mean as you all know mm-hmm. it's not been very good for the uh, Aboriginal uh, peoples the indigenous peoples especially with the uh, discovery of graves of, of children in residential schools so uh, I keep wondering is this just all Rhetoric when they say they're trying to uh, decolonize, de, uh, is it all re- when they call, talk, talk in terms of reconciliation, decolonization, inclusion, and anti bigotrism is it all just rhetoric? Yeah, it, I mean, uh, and, yeah. And, I, and I get where you're coming from. Um, you know, there's no doubt other nations uh, that have been that have had to deal with colonialism have changed many of their names of their cities, of their uh, monuments, and yeah. taken down monuments. 
in regards to that colonial past. India is a classic example. Bombay is now Mumbai, and many other cities have changed and having born, been born in India and, and lived in India. Yeah. Um, it is a constant conversation. But one could also argue that Britain or the UK... Uh, has also changed. Today, its prime minister of, is of South Asian, Indian heritage. Uh, uh, its national dish is not fish and chips. It probably is, Indi- is an Indian Indian food now, if anybody's been to a, an Indian pub la- or Ch- uh, English pub lately. Um, in regards to this issue, um, what do you want to see? Do you just want to see a complete name change then, uh, instead of not just taking out the British and British Columbia, but just coming up with a brand new name for our province? Yeah, I'd like to see a, a brand new name which probably has some uh, indigenous uh, words in it. But perhaps uh, we could uh, it could be something with the initials BC, so that we don't have to change BC, ICBC, BC Ferries, BC Hydro, UBC, etc. And just slap BC, but uh, it would it would not be including uh, British in the name uh, because. I'm not British. I'd rather be. I just want to be Canadian. I don't want to be a British person. I have heard you <laughs> loud and clear, Ben. Thank you for your time today, Ben. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. My responsibility is to ensure that there is a safe and effective transition that ensures safe and effective policing for the city of Surrey. That work is underway. I want that work to be done as quickly as possible. The city of Surrey wants it to be done as quickly as possible, and I know the residents of Surrey want it to be done as quickly as possible. The city of Surrey has acknowledged that those costs are their costs. So, honorable member, that work is underway, but I want to make it clear. A transition has to ensure safe and effective policing. And as a former Solicitor General, you should know that that is the key priority. The debate in this chamber today is, is not about public safety. That we agree with. We agree that that has to be a priority. What we are arguing about is the fact that this minister studiously avoided answering the question. And he feels very free to point fingers at everybody else for the mess that's taking place in Surrey. Let's be clear. This is a total mess. Things got a little chippy today in the question period in the legislature. That was uh, BC Liberal Shirley Bond challenging Mike Farnworth, uh, Sister General, uh, in regards to the Surrey policing situation. It was a municipal issue. It's more and more looking like a a provincial one as well. I'm Jazz Joel. I'm joined by my uh, co-host today, Robin Gill. Uh, I know you were going to, we're covering a lot, a variety of stories, but we keep going back to the Surrey story because it doesn't Well, it really is one of the biggest stories in the province right now because it's become the province's problem. Oh, yes. And top of that, 11 provincial seats and and how taxpayers react to Brenda Locke saying that uh, property taxes will go up by 17.5% percent at this point. Nine and a half of that 17 percent is because of the transition or transitioning back to the RCMP uh, potentially. She brought this up over the weekend and now it's ended up in the legislature. Let's catch up with our Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter, to get an update in regards to today's rather chippy uh, discourse uh, in the question period. Uh, Richard, thank you for joining us. Now you can hear the irritation in Mike Farnworth's voice there. And Robin, it will be great chatting with you. It's great to hear your voice. Uh, not as chippy as Mike Farnworth's voice. And Jazz, it's always fun to be on with you. <laughs> you know, Richard, I don't want to be in Mike Farnsworth's shoes right now. Like, this is the biggest dilemma he's going to have to face because, uh, like, I mean, is he swayed one way or the other? Uh, the sense I'm getting, Robin and, and Jazz, is that 
this is a government that does not want to deal with this issue, would rather it not be on their table, and it now is. And the big issue uh, is staffing. And I think the staffing issue is more complex uh, than we ever knew. We know that Surrey RCMP, the city of Surrey, uh, Surrey Police Service had to present reports to the province. Those reports were insufficient. They have now produced additional reports on Thursday that uh, Farnworth staff is now working through. And where I think the discrepancy is are about the numbers that both Surrey and the RCMP are using. Every year, the RCMP uh, puts into its program hundreds of future police officers. And those officers then get allocated across the province based on RCMP coverage plans uh, in different jurisdictions. And the number that Surrey police, or sorry, the city of Surrey and the RCMP are using is based on the number of uh, future officers who are enrolled. The real real number will be the number of students that actually graduate to get that accreditation that can go on the street. And that could be anywhere from 10, 15, 20% lower. That's where the discrepancy is. The province doesn't believe that there will be enough officers going to Surrey RCMP to ensure that that community is properly policed. And therefore, they have some serious questions about whether keeping that police force is even possible. Right now, in Surrey, about 20% of all calls are being dealt with by the Surrey Police Service. And I think the minister has serious questions about whether that 20% can get offloaded back to the Surrey RCMP. So my gut is telling me, Robin, that it feels like there are serious questions about whether the the mayor's wish, the goal here of of the city council is actually going to be possible based on that uh, staffing issue. But that was one of the questions we put toward her yesterday. Are you padding this this budget because you you need future hires? Yeah, and I think that that's where we're at, is that they are working their best. And the RCMP has a vested interest here to make this work, right? This is their largest force. Having a footprint in the second largest city in British Columbia in day-to-day policing is crucial for the RCMP. But they can only train and get on the ground as many officers as they can. And so that is the number that the minister is looking at. The, The question is simple. To the minister, do you believe that Surrey can be properly policed? Getting an answer to that is much more complicated than the question. Uh, Richard, these eight, the, the issue in and around the 18 months severance uh, that the mayor yeah. brought up with us yesterday, uh, I'm curious as to what you're hearing in the corridors of power uh, in the legislature. Is, is this viewed as a poison pill or is this a sticking point uh, for, in regards to the government's decision moving forward in regards to how they want to move? It seems to be a poison pill in terms of the property tax issue, but not in the way that the government is planning on moving. But ultimately, they could be connected, right? There is a worry here, from what I am hearing, that the public will associate these property tax increases with the decision the province is making. Minister Farnworth wants it to be known that he has nothing to do with this contract. That yes, he signed off on the contract, but he's not signing off on terms, and agreements. He is signing off on just the idea of policing. It doesn't matter to him ultimately how this is paid for uh, because it's not his responsibility to pay for it. There's no extra money coming from the province. This is going to come from Surrey taxpayers. Now that that burden is being passed on to him in the form of blame, that's where he has a larger issue. So the other bigger challenge here as well, Jazz, is 
other police unions, when they come up for negotiations, are going to look at this and look for similar things. The fact that for six months' work, you get 18 months' severance is a massive financial burden when you're going to make changes or terminate a contract. And that's exactly the position they are in here. And, and you know, contracts cost, that's not the province's purview, but the larger issue is, you know, who does the public blame here? And I think we're obviously in the middle of a blame game. So Brenda Richard wants the province to wear it and the province is, is trying to push it back on the city. So Richard, shirt. cue Wally Opal and bring him in to <laughs> review this, right? I'm, like, I, I, I'm so predicting this right now. He's done it once. I think they had a chance to bring him in a second time. And, and I think, I don't know, I haven't talked to Wally about this, but my guess is he probably gracefully declined because as Shirley Bond described it, this is a mess. Uh, and although Wally could probably find some solutions, it's probably not a mess he wants to delve into at this point because of how uh, thick the mud seems to be. Wally has been, I think, broadly speaking, in support of, uh, of the SPS. I'm curious, yeah. because of this severance, because of the potential fallout for the NDP, is this just indirectly leading the minister towards approving the SPS? I think, in part, we will see what unfolds over the next few weeks. But there is a real concern here. You mentioned there are a number of seats at play in Surrey. There's also within caucus a force that wants to see the Surrey police police that community. And that's led from former RCMP officer Gary Begg. We're also seeing other Surrey MLAs who are not so sure that that is the right direction and understand that Brenda Locke and her council won a victory in the fall on the backing of promising to go back to the Surrey RCMP. So uh, there is a logjam in part around the caucus table from the uh, Surrey MLAs, but that fear of who gets blamed for property tax increases is clearly in part of the political calculations. But ultimately, it, it does, Jazz, I honestly believe, come down to these numbers. If the province believes, if Mike Farnworth believes that Surrey can properly staff the RCMP, mm-hmm. then he will approve that. I just don't think at this point he believes that is possible based on the data he has seen in front of him. Richard, thanks for your time today. Yeah, my pleasure as always. And what you're, of course, listening to is the theme song for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, Marvel movies, TV shows. <laughs> Robin, do you have you watched Marvel movies? Uh, one that stars Robert Downey Jr. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> the Iron Avengers, Man. the Avengers, all of that. Yeah, okay, all of there that. You go. Now that is truly a movie franchise. Uh, it has generated collectively movies and TVs twenty six billion dollars with a B. Now, to put that in context for everyone, Star Wars, which also is a huge franchise, has generated about $10 billion. Harry Potter, another franchise, $9 billion. James Bond, another franchise, uh, has generated just under $8 billion. So when it comes to movie franchises, nothing come close, comes close to Marvel's uh, cinematic universe. So it's quite surprising for many um, recently to hear that Disney plans to scale back its streaming content uh, due to... the Cost-cutting, of course, and Marvel's uh, head, uh, Kevin Feige, 
also says the company plans to release fewer shows on Disney Plus. And it has been generating a lot of, obviously, dollars, but it's also been part of the broader cultural conversation. A lot of folks have said, look, it's a great storyline. We love it. Others have said it's the death of cinema. (laughs) This is. But remember, he's talking about the shows, which are the precursors for the movies. Exactly. But all of this is cyclical. Remember that, right? I do, but $26 billion is $26 billion. And as a dad of a 14-year-old who loves these movies, it's part of my universe. So (laughs) he's been educating me on it. Joining us now is uh, Steve Steving. He's a movie critic and the national movie guy for The Shift with Shane Hewitt. You can also find him online at stevestebbing.ca. Steve, thank you for joining us today. Of course, anytime. Uh, interesting uh, news. Is this strictly a business decision, or is this a, 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 perhaps a, a, a reasoning behind this? Is I think we've been making too much too, too much of this product that it's getting watered down. I it might be a mix of both. It might be studios trying to tightening the wallet. It might be. I mean, because if you go on the internet. The, the general consensus of, uh, of the, the hive mind of the internet is that we're all sick of these movies. I, I can't consider myself part of the, the people that are sick of it, but uh, maybe Kevin Feige and Louis Esposito and everybody else is kind of uh, taking that into consideration and deciding to scale back some of, some of their shows, especially some of the shows that came out in 2022. I uh, didn't exactly... Um, have the reactions that they wanted it to. I mean, there was a lot of vitriol, uh, internet boy vitriol against uh, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Um, and uh, I mean, some of the other films like Eternals and stuff weren't well received. Same with uh, uh, Thor, Love and Thunder. So that might have reasoning to scale it back. But I mean, as far as Disney Plus goes, they have more than Marvel going. They have Star Wars. They have so many other different shows in development from their back catalog. So there's going to be other things to take those places. Yeah, I was thinking about just the output from Marvel. Three movies and three television series announced in 2022. They had four Mm -hmm. films and five shows they put out in 2021. And I think the company initially was part of this announcement was looking at potentially five Disney Plus series just for, for for this year alone. Why, I mean, I, I was talking about some of these other franchises, Star Wars, Harry Potter, uh, James Bond, all quite iconic characters. Why does the Marvel Cinematic Universe just, uh, just outnumber all of these other franchises in such a massive way? What is about this franchise that really attracts people? I think it's just the history that Marvel had before going into making films. They have so much story that they can rely on. They have so many different characters and different iterations of the characters that they can rely on to make actual really interesting stories out of it, ones that don't seem to, uh, you know, we're not going to repeat and seeing Bruce Wayne's parents get killed every time they have to reboot a Batman, or they we don't, uh, I mean, we don't see... The planet, the uh, planet of Krypton, explode, and uh, you know, sending Superman on his way in in, in his uh, lightspeed chariot to Earth. Like there are certain superheroes that always kind of have the same treatment, and I think Marvel was a break from that. I mean, especially with your first Iron Man movie, you have a billionaire playboy philanthropist who is teetering on the edge of excess, who has a real a real moment in the Middle East that kind of changes his trajectory entirely. And the charm of Robert Denny Jr. and the direction of John Favreau and, and Kevin Feige got that ball rolling. 
And I, I, you know, if we look back at that movie, that's 2008, there's no way we would see the trajectory of where we are now. Uh, I guess partially uh, when you look at action films and particularly the Marvel uh, cinematic uh, universe, um, the story, uh, whatever superhero it is, translates well globally in that you can sell a superhero in Vancouver, you can sell Mm -hmm. that same superhero in Beijing or New Delhi or or Jerusalem uh, or Nigeria for that matter. I mean, the the superhero movies... uh, Strictly on a business standpoint, uh, I guess they love them because they translate well and can that bigger global box office is so very important now for Hollywood. Absolutely, and I, I mean, there's uh, there's more to it. That, there's more of a global appeal to it rather than it being just superhero movies. Because Marvel movies for a long time um, were able to dabble in different genres along the way and kind of play with different ideas, which brought in new audiences that had never taken in a Marvel movie before. I think it's slowing down now because I think it's a lot harder to just jump into a movie like Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Like you need to have at least an appendices of seeing what led to this situation. But those of us that are in it still, like me, I, I'm 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 not fully jaded yet. Steve, my spidey senses make me wonder, though, the fact that we're talking about this and that we're going to get fans all riled up, that we're just being set up for a marketing ploy. What do you think? I think it's a, a little bit of that. I, I think the biggest problem for the Marvel Cinematic Universe now is they are chasing the dragon. They're trying to get that point in in avengers affinity war where cap says avengers assemble and he has all of the avengers around him in a huge battle with thanos where they're tr- still trying to chase that moment again and it really is like once in a lifetime and possibly once in a cinematic universe uh, i'm curious steve uh, my final question to you uh the criticism from um you know, movie purists and a lot mm-hmm. of high-profile directors, especially, uh, say uh, the Marvel Universe is ruining cinema. You couldn't make a classic movie like Godfather or Terms of Endearment or Broadcast News today. Uh, that these big tentpole movies uh, have just taken up all the space and they've killed cinema. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I don't think that that's a, a very fair criticism because uh, as movie fans like myself. Those we still do get big tentpole movies that are that are big dramatic movies. Scorsese's still making movies. Uh, I mean, Sam Mendes is still making movies. All of these these great auteurs are still making movies. We didn't stop them. We didn't stop Steven Spielberg from making from making a very cathartic, self reflective movie like The Fablemans last year because nobody went to see it. That's, that's the issue there. <laughs> that is true. And I think for, I think you raise a very good point. I think it calls out some of the silliness from Hollywood. That they can be quite self-indulgent. And mm-hmm. people want to see movies. And like you said, they're just not your, it's not your typical superhero movies either. Yeah. They do have depth and breadth and there's storylines there and layers there. It's just not the old good guy versus bad guy. It's, it's, the storyline for superheroes has changed as well. Exactly. And I don't know why we're calling out superheroes for ruining cinema and we let Adam Sandler skate through the 2000s and not <laughs> blaming anything on him. <laughs> Adam Sandler. There you go, Steve. Thank you so much.
Thanks. All right. That is Steve Stebbing, movie critic and national movie guy for The Shift with Shane Hewitt. You can find him online at stevestebbing.ca, of course. <laughs> oh, we were talking about Marvel ruining movies, and, and we he just turned it over to blame Adam Sandler. I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> He's got a point, though, although I do like Adam Sandler movies, where you don't want to think, you just want to laugh a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, sure. On a plane, I, right? On a plane, when you're it, watching it, a movie on a plane. It, exactly. I, I do like the occasional Adam Sandler. You uh, may have uh, been reading the Globe and Mail last week, a big story which uh, pointed to, of course, the Chinese government's um, interference in our uh, federal election in 2021. The Chinese influence operations were aimed at electing 11 candidates, nine liberals and two conservatives. Uh, The interference was predominantly in the greater Toronto area and here in the lower mainland, specifically uh, Richmond today, a commons committee which was probing the Chinese interference uh, in the federal election, was recalled uh, during uh, Parliament's scheduled two-week break to extend its mandate to include the 2021 campaign because of those uh, revelations uh, in the Globe and Mail. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, China and our relationship with China is Jeremy Nuttall. He's a Vancouver-based investigative journalist for the Toronto Star. He has lived and worked in China as well. Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. Always nice to be here. So, first of all, your thoughts on what the Globe and Mail reported uh, last week in regards to the 2021 federal campaign. The fact that there was, certainly from that report, um, leaked report, leaked information that showed there was influence peddling focused on the Chinese communities, uh, large diaspora in Toronto and Vancouver, to the point where consulate, uh, the consulate head here in Vancouver is alleged to be actually bragging about the influence campaign. Yeah, it's something that I think uh, um, those of us who have watched it knew was going on, um, but there was no Canadian officials that had ever really given us a, you know, any kind of a uh, affirmation that they've looked into it and and um, and that it, it was an issue. So the fact that CSIS was or somebody at CSIS has uh, um, leaked some of this information to the media is rather important because uh, you know the government so far I don't think has been taking it seriously enough. And, you know, if you go back to look at the 2021 election, I think that I've actually talked about it with you on the show before. Um, the, what happened with the targeting of Kenny Chu was particularly uh, um, concerning because it was a, a disinformation campaign that uh, made it sound like he wanted all Chinese people to have to register in Canada. Uh, moving forward... What do you think needs to happen? I mean, we, you and I have talked broadly about, um, it, of course, uh, uh, Huawei building our 5G network, our cell phone network, um, and that finally being addressed. We've talked about working with our allies. We've talked about um, scientists from China working with our universities, uh, working on really, you know, one would argue, really important um, IP that can be used for, uh, you know, whether it be chips, whether it be other valuable research, why are they still there? What needs to happen moving forward based on what we have learned just over the last week? I think most people would, would, uh, who are paying attention to this issue would say that um, a foreign agent's registry is something that Canada needs to have established. Um, that way, anybody who is sort of doing work on behalf of the Chinese government in Canada, um, you know, and, and this, this could be people who are uh, even running local newspapers. It could be people who are, who are like supposedly community leaders. They would have to be registered as doing work on behalf of the Chinese government um, or any other foreign government for that matter. I believe the one 
Uh, I believe that the proposal for the first one uh, only included governments that were considered hostile, like Iran. And anyway, so I, I think that's the one big thing that uh, most experts uh, and China watchers would agree is, is something that needs to be done. Hey, Jeremy, Robin Gill here. Um, you know, the Global Mail has been reporting on this. Global News has been reporting on this. And, you know, it took the prime minister weeks to finally say, well, this isn't a new phenomenon. And countries around the world, as you mentioned, have been grappling with this for a long time. Why did it take so long to uncover this? Um, I think that uh, the government doesn't want this to be uncovered. And, I mean, even if you saw uh, the prime minister's response to the Globe and Mail piece, it was he was going to find out whoever whoever has been leaking this information from CSIS. You know, he didn't seem concerned about the fact this was actually happening, and he, it's something that he before had said wasn't happening. He seemed concerned that somebody at CSIS told the press. And I think that's... Um, I, I think that kind of kind of shows where uh, the prime minister's head is at on this issue. So you don't think that this committee, uh, the House of Commons committee, that's looking into this, is going to accomplish much? Um, no, I don't think. I, I think at the end of it, uh, you know, if they can bring some some more light uh, to the issue to the Canadian public via the media, that would be good. But uh, I can't see any firm legislation happening. Uh, you know, judging by the Liberals' response to this thus far, uh, Jeremy. Would it actually require us to, and I'm speculating aloud here, of course, but going to a consul general in Vancouver and say, look, this is what we have learned, and it is time for you to leave this country. Um, uh, Are we near that? Uh, Are we at that point yet? I I would say, I mean, again, based on, uh, based on, you know, the, the regular people I speak to about these issues, such as Charles Burton, et cetera, uh, a lot of them would say, uh, yeah, it's time, it is time to do that. Um, if they're interfering with our elections, if they're bragging about it, um, not to mention some of the other issues that we've had with Chinese diplomats in, in Canada, like, uh, I mean, just generally insulting the country, for one, um, calling Canada white supremacist, etc. I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of people would, would argue that, yeah, it is time for Canada to put its foot down and send a message. Yeah. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. All right. Thank you very much. All right. That is uh, Jeremy Nuttall. He's a Vancouver-based investigative journalist for the Toronto Star. He has lived and worked in China uh, as well. He follows um, the goings-on of um, the Chinese government here in Canada and, of course, in China as well. He was talking to us today uh, after the Commons Committee, which is probing uh, China's interference in the 2019 federal election. It was uh, The committee was recalled um, in response to what was, uh, uh, what I guess, rele- revelations from uh, in the Globe and Mail that were reported. They want to broaden the mandate of that committee to include the 2021 campaign. The revelations last week basically showed that um, the Chinese influence operations were aimed at electing 11 candidates, nine Liberals, two Conservatives, uh, from the t- greater Toronto area and the greater Vancouver area as well. And as I said, in one case, uh, it alleges in one of the stories that the Chinese Consul General here in Vancouver was bragging about their influence campaign and how successful uh, it was. It is, you know, Robin, when you think about this in regards to the challenges before Canada, I always find Australia, which is a country in regards to population, certainly slightly smaller than Canada, but very similar in system, very system similar in regards to a broader worldview. Comparable in politics, yeah, for sure. All, all of it. And they have been so tough on China and they've pushed back, like, kind of like pushing back on the bully at the beach and, and they have natural resources that China wants and they've still been able to trade with China, but they've pushed back in a significant way. And I feel we're just sort of muddling our way to the point we will probably do the same thing as Australia, but we won't do it firmly 
you know, saying, look, we'll trade with you still, but this is who we are, this is what we're about, and you will not do X, Y, and Z in this country. We don't push back. And if you think about where Australia is geopolitically located as well, the fact that they're pushing back against this, you know, massive nation says a lot more than what we're doing here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they they view themselves as an Asian nation, and they can still push back against uh, a power like China in Asia, well, us here next to a superpower in North America still are muddling our way through and our citizens were kidnapped, right? Remember that? Our two of our oh, citizens. I, two, oh, I covered that yeah, extensively, ex- Jeff. Yeah, exactly. I remember that well. And, it, and we are just not strong enough. So it's really, really frustrating. listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.